This past week in Vacation Bible School, the children <clears throat> learned so many, many good things, good songs, good verses, good lessons. And the theme this year was faith. Faith is the gift of God, they were taught. And that's exactly what the Bible says. By grace have you been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. They learned we need faith to follow His plan, and God gives that faith. And God gives faith to believe His promises, faith to obey Him, faith to repent, and faith to share the good news of Jesus Christ to others. They were also given biblical examples of real people, real people who lived by faith. Moses was given faith to follow God's plan to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. David was given faith to believe that he could slay that giant. Daniel and his three friends were given faith to obey God even when they faced death. Matthew was given faith to repent of his sins and follow Christ. And God gave Paul and Silas faith to share the Gospel even when they were in prison. Now this morning, we're not going to the book of Acts. We're going to focus on one of these examples that the kids learn. And it's the example of the calling and the conversion of Matthew, which is a marvelous example, not only of faith to repent, but a marvelous example of God's wonderful grace. His conversion is found in his own gospel, Matthew chapter 9. This is... Matthew writing about his conversion. When you're writing about yourself, that can be a difficult thing. But he does it so wonderfully well. Giving the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12. I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 12 and following. <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 9, though. It says there, and Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher... Eat with tax collectors and sinners. When Jesus heard that, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here we have the calling of one of Christ's early disciples. It was Matthew himself. Jesus said, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We read in verse 9 that as he passed by on from there, he saw this man named Matthew sitting in the tax office. Well, obviously that means that he was a tax collector. He wasn't there to get his taxes done. He was a collector himself. They were called publicans 
in the older translations. And that's anything but a noble profession. Now, I've never met an IRS agent in my life, I don't think. Uh, we, don't, we wouldn't want to get a letter from one of them. We wouldn't want to have one of them knock on our door. But uh, I don't think that we would despise them. But these t- tax collectors were despised. A publican, you see, was a Jew who collected taxes from his fellow countrymen for the Roman government. And the Jews hated being under Roman occupation and control, and they certainly didn't like paying taxes to Caesar. That's why the Romans enlisted the Jews, a Jew to collect it for them. And so publicans were viewed as traitors who would sell out their own countrymen if the price was right. And the price was right. They made good money for it. But they also were notorious for overcharging the people their taxes, telling them that they owed so much, which was actually more than they actually owed. And they would pocket the surplus. One man said that the publican was an apostate to his church, his friends, his self-respect. Some men are traitorous in one black deed, but he was traitorous all day long every day. They had quite a reputation. They were held in with deep-rooted disgust and contempt. The very name, a tax collector, was odious among the Jews. It's mentioned often in the same sentence as the sinners or the harlots and the tax collectors. The rest of verse 9 uh, says that he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed Jesus. Matthew doesn't give us the details of what the Lord Jesus said to him when he saw him in the tax office, what he said to him or his explanation of what he meant when he said, follow me. But we know that he must have said more than simply follow me and he gets up like a zombie and just follows him. No, he explained things. He, he would explain things all the time. He would explain what it means to follow him. We can be sure, as Calvin said, that he must have explained with many words why he was called and on what conditions. Jesus called him to follow him. That is, to be one of his disciples. To come and learn from him. Follow him. Imitate him. He would be the master and they would be the disciples. And so, he followed him. Now, there's an outward call. And there's an inward call. The outward call is that when the gospel goes forth, when Jesus says, come unto me, and Jesus said this often wherever he went, he would stand up in a great feast and cry out, I am the water of life. He was thirsty, let him come unto me. I am the bread of life. He was hungry, let him come unto me. He's continually telling people to come unto him. But here, uh, you see Matthew's response. It says, so he arose and followed him. There was no delay or hesitation. He didn't wait for a more convenient time. He was prompt in his response. He obeyed without hesitation or without delay. 
Now, what's the cause of this? Well, the cause of this was that inward call of the Gospel. The inward call is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man. When God calls outwardly, men refuse. But when He calls inwardly, they do as Matthew did. He arose, left everything, and followed Him. He was prompt. He obeyed without hesitation, without delay. Jesus gave a parable of the man who threw the great feast and invited many. But all, it says, began to make excuses. They had other things to do. They had to take care of this or they had to take care of that. But true obedience, as William J. says, is always prompt and unreserved. Now, Luke's Gospel tells us that he left everything, rose and followed him. You see, it cost him something to follow the Lord Jesus. And it will cost you something to follow Him as well. That's why Jesus spoke of counting the cost if you're going to follow Him. That's why I believe that Jesus explained things to him. What it meant. He couldn't stay where He was. The profession He had was, an, was a sinful profession. He had to leave that behind, and so He does. Charles Simeon says, I do not say that we must actually renounce all our worldly interests for Christ, for Christ, but this I say that we must be ready to renounce them if they interfere with our duty to Him or if by surrendering of them we may more advance His glory in the world. You see, we have to be willing, he says. We have to be ready. He doesn't tell us all to sell everything we have, give to the poor and follow Him. He tells some people that. And when He tells them that, they must do it. But we must be willing to do anything to follow Him. That's why He needed that grace to follow Him. That faith to follow Him. And how much faith that would take. Here is this man He's never seen before. Comes and starts telling Him who He is and what He's come to do and what Matthew needs to do. He needs to leave everything and come and follow Him. That would take a lot of faith, wouldn't it? There's nothing about Jesus that we would, uh, would cause us to desire Him. He didn't just have this magnetic personality, this, this charming personality that you would do anything to follow this man. The Bible says there was nothing about Him. There was no comeliness. There was, there, there was nothing about Him that would attract us. And yet what He said made all the sense in the world. So much sense that he was ready to leave everything and follow him. Again, Charles Simeon explains it further. He says, on no other terms will he receive us. If we be not willing to, quote, lose father and mother and houses and lands, yea, our own lives also for his sake, we cannot be his disciples. Now, that's strong words. But that's exactly what Jesus said. We must be willing to leave everything. We must be willing to surrender to Him our entire life. Our goals, our ambitions, our pleasures. Everything. John Calvin said in, in the great readiness and eagerness of Matthew to obey, we see the divine power of the Word of Christ. Not that all in whose ears He utters His voice are equally affected in their hearts, 
But in this man, Christ intended to give a remarkable example that we might know that his calling was not from man. That he could get a complete stranger to get up and follow him. That was the work of God in his heart. God calls all men to faith and repentance. That is the outward call I was talking about. The outward call goes out to all men indiscriminately, but the inward call, what we refer to as the effectual call, it's when God not only calls us to faith and repentance, but He gives us faith and repentance. He calls all men to believe in Him, to turn from their sins and follow Him, but He gave him faith and repentance. That's why the Apostle Paul Whenever he heard of someone's faith, what did he do? He thanked God. (laughs) Since I heard of your faith, I haven't ceased to thank God. Thanking God for their faith, that's because God is the one who gave it. It wasn't something they had by nature. It wasn't something they figured out on their own. This is something that God gave them. Faith is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. In our study of the book of Acts, we heard of the, the, the conversion of Cornelius. Now next week when we get to chapter 11, we'll see how these church leaders and those in the church of Jerusalem, when they heard what God had done in saving Cornelius and baptizing him and his family with the Holy Spirit, what did they respond and say? They said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance light. You hear those words? God granted them the repentance to follow Him, to turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The hymn writer put it, bowed down, bound down with twice ten thousand ties, yet let me hear thy call. My soul in confidence shall rise, shall rise and break through all. You see, when God does a work in your heart, Like Matthew, you arise, you leave everything, and you follow Him. Notice in verse 10 of Matthew 9, it says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Him and with His disciples. Luke's Gospel says that that, uh, Matthew, or Levi, he calls him, he gave him, that is, gave Jesus a great feast, in his own house. Uh, They just didn't stop by for a snack. (laughs) This was a great feast. And he was a wealthy man. He must have had a large house to accommodate all these people, not only Jesus and the twelve disciples, but all of these friends that he invited with him. He was a wealthy man. And he threw a great feast and many came to this feast. Now, there is at least a twofold purpose for this banquet, why he gave this feast. First of all, it was a time of great rejoicing and gladness. A time of celebration. For what? Because he had found the Savior. Or the Savior, rather, had found him. It was a time of rejoicing. Salvation had come to his house. He got up day after day and went down to the tax office Collected taxes. He was the traitor of his people. Collecting from his own countrymen. 
cheating them, stealing from them, building all of this wealth. Oh, there's no satisfaction in that. He was living out his days. Oh, he had many things like that fool who had had a bumper crop and built bigger barns and said, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many things stored up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. But there is no true happiness or joy in that. Because it's taken away in a moment. Or you're taken away in a moment. And now, who will enjoy those things Jesus said? There's no true joy in this. But here, He found life. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. You remember the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke's Gospel, when the son came back and the father saw him from a distance, he ran out to meet him. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And then he called his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And what does it say? They began to be merry. That's what a feast is for. To be married, to celebrate. And they're celebrating his new life in Jesus Christ. You see, the conversion of a sinner is a time of great rejoicing. Jesus said there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner than repents, that repents than 99 who need no repentance. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels, but there's rejoicing in the heart of the sinner. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. It's a blessed thing to become a Christian. To have your sins forgiven, wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, so far have they been removed from you. Like the burden on pilgrim's back. It rolls off and rolls down the hill into the sepulcher. It's gone. Jesus said to the paralytic, just in this same chapter here in chapter 9, when He said to him in verse 2, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Be of good cheer. And here's a man lying on a mat. He can't even stand up. He's paralyzed. And Jesus said, be of good cheer. Not be of good cheer. I'm about to heal you and now you're going to walk. But be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You see, it doesn't matter what else you have. If you, have not that, if you don't have that debt paid, the debt of your sin, you're not a happy person. You can't be a happy person. You're not right with the living God. He it says that he who believeth not in the Son, the condemnation of God hangs over his head. If ever there was a time for rejoicing, it was this. You see, a person, when he becomes to Christ, he's brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. He was a slave of sin. And now he's been set free. He was a child of the devil and has been adopted into the very family of God. Before he was setting up his treasure on earth, 
But now He's setting up His treasure in heaven. If ever there was a time for rejoicing, this was the time. So, it was an opportunity for great joy and gladness. But the second purpose of this feast was it was an opportunity to have His old associates and friends exposed to and acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he, the, these tax collectors and sinners came in with Him. They, they came to the house. They were there to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted them to find what He had found. Just like Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he first found his own brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Philip, when he found Nathaniel, he said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You remember Nathaniel's response, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. And he came and believed. The Samaritan at the, the woman's well. After Jesus told her everything she knew, she ran back to her town and told the men, Come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Wanted them to find out. Wanted them to see for themselves. And Just like Cornelius, we've been studying about in the book of Acts, he invited all of his family and friends to come and hear what Peter would tell him about salvation. Charles Simeon said, In this he sought to honor his Lord in the face of the whole world and to advance the interests of his kingdom by bringing others to the knowledge of him. We should not only be ashamed, not be ashamed to confess him openly before men, but we should exert ourselves to bring our friends and relatives to an acquaintance with him that they also may be made monuments of His grace and become partakers of the blessings which we enjoy. Don't you want that? Don't you want others to know about Christ? Doesn't it really bring our own faith into question if we're satisfied to have Christ for ourselves and we don't want others to know Him? Do we really believe what we say we believe? Well, we need to tell others of the good news of salvation. Do not hide your light under a bushel, Jesus said, but put it out in the open on a lampstand so others can see it. But we see also in this passage that not everyone was rejoicing. They were rejoicing and making merry, but not everyone. In verse 11, it says, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to His disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Pharisees could not bear this despicable sight. Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. They took up a reproach against Him. John Broadus, the old writer, said, according to the prevailing Jewish ideas, a rabbi of all men ought carefully to avoid all intercourse with such persons. This was not only the social objection to keep keeping low company, but the constant dread of ceremonial pollution from coming into contact with persons likely to be 
ceremonially unclean. We've been studying about that in the book of Acts. And also that feeling so natural to man which says, Stand back. I am holier than thou. The Pharisees were always pointing this out. He's eating with sinners. This woman who came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, the Pharisee Simon said, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this was who's touching him. The implication was he wouldn't let her. He wouldn't stand for it because she's a sinner. So they were absolutely offended at the behavior of the Lord Jesus. Now, it says that they directed their complaint to the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're sowing discord is what they're doing. Rather than going directly to the Lord and confronting Him with His supposed sin, these cowardly fault finders went to His disciples and said, Why? Why is He doing that? It was really an accusation, wasn't it? And the implication to them would have been, are you sure you want to follow such a one as this? He says he's a rabbi, but is he really? These disciples, they were very young, very inexperienced. And they had a lot of misconceptions about the Messiah's work. But they brought this difficulty to the Lord for His explanation Well, this isn't so difficult for him at all, is it? Notice what Jesus says in verse 12. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is both a rebuke and an encouragement. It's a rebuke to those self-righteous Pharisees and anyone who would think that this was wrong for him to associate in any way with these sinners. But it was also an encouragement to sinners to come to him. Now, notice, he gives this analogy, first of all. He begins with this analogy to explain what's going on here, the precise nature of his associating with these sinners. He doesn't dispute the nature of those with whom he was associating. He didn't defend their actions and say, well, they're really not such bad people if you got to know them. These tax collectors and sinners, they're they're really not so bad after all. He doesn't deny they're sinners, and he doesn't deny that he's associating with them. He's having a meal with them. But what he shows by this analogy, he stands in relation to them as a physician to his patients. I'm like a doctor. A doctor, what does a doctor do? A doctor goes to the sick. William Hendrickson said, when he associates on intimate terms with people of low reputation, he doesn't do this as what they call a hobnobber or a comrade in evil. Or like some would say, birds of a feather flock together. And that's certainly what they did. Uh, No one else would be their friends, but fellow sinners would be their friends uh, because nobody else would. 
But he comes to them, as Hendrickson says, as a physician, one who without in any way becoming contaminated with the diseases of his patients must get very close to them in order that they that he may heal them. I need to be around them because if I'm not around them, how are they going to get well? And that's his objective, you see. His objective isn't just to to make them feel better about their disease uh, or, or that he's willing to be around them when no one else is. No, he's there to take care of the problem of their sin. And so in using this analogy, Jesus really is speaking of their great need for Him. You see, He's associating with them because they need Him. They need Him like a sick man needs a doctor. He says, I associate with them because they need Me and they need Me more than they need anything else in this world. You see, sin is a disease. Not a physical disease, but it is a, a moral disease. It's been called a vast moral disease that's infected every single individual born of Adam. Someone said that mercy, mercy graciously regards sin as a disease. Not because it's a mere disease. It's certainly more than that. It's a moral disease. It's something we, we inherit from our parents. It's hereditary. We, we get it from our parents. Just through one man, Paul says, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men. Sin is ruinous. It promises so much. But it gives so little. And it takes away anything we have of any good. It ends in death. The wages of sin is death. It's incurable. Man cannot cure this disease. And they keep trying. They throw money at it. They try to educate it out. They do everything. If they can get enough programs together, they'll, they'll fix it. And it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. It's a disease from which there is no cure except the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. Men try to deny they have such a disease, but that doesn't change it. Others try to patch it up with a few good works, either moral works or religious works, but sin is still there. It's still eating them alive. And that's what Jesus saw them. They are like people with a sickness, and I'm like a doctor. That's why I'm associating with them. And I think we need to make that point be clear about that. A lot of people say, well, Jesus, He didn't mind hanging around sinners. No, He didn't hang around sinners as though He just felt comfortable with them. He was there because they needed Him. They needed the Lord Jesus Christ as a sick man needs a doctor. That's the point here. Those who are well, he says, have no need of a physician. What does that mean? Does that mean there's some people that are okay? Some people think that. There's just certain people that are bad, and the rest of us are okay. Well, the rescue mission, they need the gospel. 
but I don't need the gospel. I'm a pretty good man. I'm a good father, a good husband. I'm a good employee or a good employer. I, I do good things. Does that mean they're well? Well, that's what the Pharisees thought. The Pharisees standing in the temple, he thought he was a pretty good man. God, I thank You that I am not like other men. And he begins to rattle off their sins. But none of his own. Luke tells us this about them. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. That's what Jesus means when He says those who are well. It's not that they're actually well. They think they're well. They see no need to come to Christ. They can take care of it on their own. Or they don't need anything to take care of in the first place. You see, they're they're well in their own eyes. They trust in themselves. They're the ones that are whole. I don't need a doctor. William J. says, Such also are they, though they make no pretensions of self-righteousness, are satisfied with themselves. You can't just point to the religious people and say, Oh, they're the self-righteous. No, there are others who are just Satisfied with themselves. Satisfied without religion at all. He says the careless, the worldly, who live without one serious thought of their souls and eternity. Yes, such too are they who receive the charge in theory and acknowledge it as they do any other Bible sentiment, but their rest not, but they, but their rest not impressed with the truth so as to urge them to the Savior. And so He'll profit them nothing. Jesus didn't come for them. They don't see their need for Him. But those who are sick, those are the ones who see their need of Christ. They they recognize their malady. They recognize they can't cure it. They feel, feel this spiritual sickness and darkness. And so they come to Christ for relief. Maybe they've tried everything else. Like that woman who had this flow of blood for 12 years and, and says so she suffered many things from many physicians. And some, some of you know what that's like. They can't figure out what's wrong and they try this and they try that and nothing seems to work. And people are like that about their moral disease. They try this. They go to church for a while and that made them feel good for a while, but then that haunting feeling, that guilt, that corruption was still there. They try to do good works. They try to balance out their bad works with good works. But that never saved anyone. And then Jesus makes this appeal to Scripture, which we'll not cover right now, but He makes an appeal to Scripture. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's what the Pharisees thought. If we just do this, offer this sacrifice or that, we're in good shape. A lot of people think that. If I go to church, I'm good. I got that out of the way. I got my prayers out of the way. I'm all prayed up. I did this. I did that. I'm okay now. No, that's not what God desires. He desires mercy. Mercy. He he loves to show mercy Himself, but He wants us to be merciful to others. And they're looking down their self-righteous nose at, at these sinners, at these tax collectors, And they despise them. They hold them with contempt. Not realizing that they are sinners too. 
Maybe they hadn't committed the same sins, but they all sinned against the same God. And in fact, their sins might even be worse. There's nothing God hates more than self-righteousness. He hates it. There's some sins that he, he puts his finger on. There's other sins that he bears his arm against. And it's pride. He hates pride. And they didn't see the pride within their own hearts. Christ eating with sinners was an act of mercy. They didn't get it. And then he makes this assertion. I came to call sinners. That's why I came. I did not come to call the righteous but I came to call sinners. This was the very purpose for which He came into the world. And that's where the Jews had it all wrong about the coming of Christ. They were waiting for someone on a white charger to come riding in and deliver them from the hand of the Romans. They wouldn't be paying taxes. They wouldn't have to say, Hail Caesar, deliver them from their enemies. That's their Messiah. They didn't realize the Messiah came like a doctor. Because they have a moral disease called sin. And He's the only one who can fix it. He's the only one who can take it away. I came to call sinners. How can the Messiah be associated with such sinners? And so they just dismissed Him right off. But that's the very reason He came. What an illustration of the grace and mercy of Christ we have right here in the text. This calling of Matthew. He's writing these words down, giving his own testimony. I was sitting in that tax office. I remember the day. I remember when he walked up. I remember when he began explaining who he was and what he was calling me to do. And I rose and I went forth and I followed him. Can't you see his tears of gratitude running down his cheeks as he's writing these words? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Here's an example of that undeserved goodness and pure kindness of Christ, that grace of God. Here's an example. He wasn't only forgiven, you see. He was forgiven just like that paralytic previously. He was forgiven... Matthew, this, this publican, he was not only admitted into God's family, but he was called to be an apostle. An apostle. I mean, these other men, you think of Peter and John and these fishermen. They were simple men, uneducated men. But here's a bad man. A bad man saved and rescued and put into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and made an apostle. And not only made an apostle, he became a vehicle of divine revelation. He wrote the book of Matthew. What, a, what an example of unmerited favor. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, they asked? Jesus said, they need me. In fact, the heart of God in heaven towards them, He desires to show them mercy. The purpose of my coming into the world, Jesus said, 
was to call them to repentance. The gospel is an exclusive message. It's for sinners only. Sinners only. Now, it's really the message for the world because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But not every man and woman, boy or girl, recognizes this. They don't see their need. They don't see Christ as their only hope. Are you, sen- are you sensible of your sin? Of your disease? Do you feel unworthy of anything but God's wrath and condemnation? Then I've got good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. To give them repentance. To call them to turn from their sins. To turn to Him. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you're satisfied with yourself, if you're satisfied with your own level of goodness, maybe you say, I'm not as good as some, but I'm better than most. Then we have no message for you. No message for you except the wrath of God abides upon you. But if you see your need, and that's all He requires, is that you see your need. And you turn Him, you call upon Him. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith to believe. Faith to follow. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. That's good news. That's welcoming news. He welcomes sinners. He ate with sinners not to show that they're not so bad, but because they were so bad. He was their only hope. And He came to call them from their sins to follow Him. And that's what He's calling you today to do. Just as He called Matthew, just as He called the others, He's calling you. Lay down the weapons of your warfare against Him. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. They've done nothing to help you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Following Him. Being His disciples. Learning from Him. You have a new teacher. A new master. A new heart to follow Him. That's what He gives. This He gives you. This He gives you. Is the Spirit's rising beam. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank